we want you to be in Mark chapter 6 today as well. We, we are there too, Mark chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be in verses 30 to 44 as we continue on in our book study of Mark. And I'm going to let the uh, good folks up on top help me with my slides. They can advance them for me. And I'm starting this morning with a simple question. Ponder this. Does truth change? Does it change? The modern culture says it does. It says you can have your truth and I'll have my truth. There's not really a lot of objective truth, if there's any objective truth. Is there absolute truth or not? Uh, what do you say? Modern voices tell us that truth evolves. It changes constantly. And if you want an example from that, uh, of, of that, I'm reading a book by Russell Moore called Onward. Russell Moore is an American evangelical theologian, and he recounts a conversation that he had with an atheist woman who was interested in biblical uh, thought only because it piqued her interest. She wasn't interested in really the opportunities of following Christ, but she wanted to know a little bit about the Christian worldview. And she took issue with the Bible's pre presentation of gender, what it has to say about gender and human sexuality. She said to Russell Moore, she said, do you see how strange what you're saying sounds to us? Those of us out here in normal America. Huh. Did you catch that? I think you, you began to. And the word normal has been radically redefined in our culture. The traditional view of one man and one woman united in marriage for one lifetime and sexual expression limited to that arrangement is seen by probably most people in modern culture as abnormal. Not normal, that traditional view of marriage and sexuality, that's now viewed by many people, if not the majority of people in modern culture, as somehow freakish. Believe it or not, that's the way it's seen. This woman said to him again, do you know how strange what you're saying sounds to me? She said, you're the first person I've ever encountered who represented such a strange view. <laughs> and he said to her, I understand that sounds strange to you, but you, what you should know is this. As Christians, we believe even stranger things than that. We believe a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky on a horse. <laughs> and Revelation, the great white horse. You know, if the culture around us thinks that we're strange and out of step, that just might be a compliment. In fact, I think it is. If we're not different from the culture around us, friends, if we're not out of step with it, something's wrong. We've got nothing to say to it if we're not distinct from it. We are different. We've got a whole bunch of far out beliefs. Think about it. We believe in a virgin birth. That's pretty far out. We believe in a bloody cross. We believe in the power of a glorious resurrection. Who believes in such things? We believe in the second coming of a king. It's pretty big stuff to believe in. Yeah, we're sold out for that stuff. Our lives are marching onward toward a different kind of reign, a different kind of rule, a different kind of reign. And if you didn't know this by now, I'll just cut to the chase and tell you the truth. Christianity in America has lost the culture wars. We've lost that. But we have not lost Jesus. We've not lost him. And it isn't time to hunker down. It's time to stay on mission. Because Jesus is still wanting us to engage in our mission and to engage the culture. Tough times for believers are to be anticipated. 
Dark times shouldn't surprise us. Opposition to the Christian faith should not shock us, even though it's harder now to to live for what you believe if you're a Christ follower than it's ever been, and it's going to get tougher. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul said to young Timothy these words, but know this, Timothy, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Sounds like a lot of modern religion. Uh, Spirituality without the power, without the the, the belief in the miracles of, of Scripture. And from such people turn away. Now, I want you to interpret that or to apply that with great care, with some discernment, because the Apostle Paul who wrote it was also the apostle to the Gentiles. He was a Jewish believer who was called to minister the good news to the Gentiles, those who were not the chosen people of God, but who were called uh, after the Jews to know Jesus. And he was an evangelist to them. And so he was engaging culture. Paul wasn't just shaming the culture and saying, I want nothing to do at all with these people that, that, that don't like Jesus and that don't want to hear my gospel. He said, I'll bleed for them to find Jesus. And so we have this interesting relationship to culture if we understand it well as believers. We're not called to, to shun the world around us and to hate it. You know, as, as, as churches that love Jesus, you know what would be easy to do? It'd be easy to develop a mindset that we are to dig a, a metaphorical a moat around the church, fill it with water, fill it with hungry crocodiles, and have a drawbridge, lift it up, and we all hunker down in here, and we feel safe, and we say, oh, Lord, come. We're safe from those, those worldly people for now. Come and get us. We're all ready. Come and get us, and we don't worry about the world out there. But that's not the Christian mindset, and that's not the meaning of what the Apostle Paul was saying in that text. If you could move to the next slide, please. That's the text that we read there just a moment ago. We are not to do that. We are to integrate, to infiltrate the world without approving everything in it, right? We're to, we're to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. CEF understands that. We understand that. A lot of missions understand that. In the passage that we're going to be looking at today in Mark chapter 6, we see something powerful here. In the miracle feeding of the 5,000, as this text is commonly referred to, we see our Lord engaging culture with grace, with compassion, with healing. And if you look beyond the setting of that great event where it took place on the northern shore of Galilee, those thousands of people who were there that day, who were cared for, who were fed, most of them would later, would ultimately reject him as Lord and as Messiah. He knew that. Friends, he served him anyway. Friends, he loved him anyway. Do you see the instruction for a disciple there? Do you see the example of your Lord there? That we don't worry about, oh, is this going to reward me if I serve this person who's a non-Christian, who, who doesn't seem to share my interest in spiritual things? Do I have to, do I have to love this person that's not like me? yes. Do I have to give to somebody that maybe won't give something back to me? Yes, if you're a Christian. Do I need to engage culture? Yes. If we understand our calling, you see our task is one of engaged alienation. That next slide gives a good definition of that for us. 
and it isn't my term, it's Russell Moore's term, engaged alienation. That's Christianity that preserves the distinctiveness of our gospel while not retreating from our callings as neighbors and friends and citizens. It's a great term. You know, the Bible says that we are like strangers and aliens in this world. It says that. Peter said that about Christians. But be careful in how you interpret it. Peter wasn't saying build your church again with the, with the moat around it and the crocodiles. He said you need to be out there sharing the love of God before God comes back and judges the world because it's going to be too late then. So engaged alienation. Let's come to the text today because this text is so familiar to us. It's almost too familiar. We can become so familiar with some of these stories of Scripture that we, we, we miss the point. We say, oh, I know that story. Well, there's, it's not just a story. And, and, and this particular event isn't really about the, the thousands of people. It's a big crowd. That's kind of what captures the, the headline or the tagline in this. But really, the, the, big, the, big, uh, the learners in this story are the disciples. The significant thing to see here is the disciples and what they could learn. So I'm at verse 30 here, Mark 6. The apostles returned to Jesus. Now, they'd been out on a mission. He'd sent them out two by twos to do some pretty weighty missions. He had commissioned them. He sent them and empowered them to do exorcisms, to do healings, uh, to preach the good news. And they had been effective in ministry. And they came back and gave their missions update to the master. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. I think they were excited. Verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They'd been so busy, they didn't have time for a snack. Seriously, that's not an exaggeration. They had no leisure even to eat. Please see something here. I want you to see, before the word compassion even shows up in the text, I want you to see the compassion of Jesus for people. God recognizes human limitations here. He looks at these men who have just come in from the field of service, of obeying him, obeying the commissioned work he gave them, and they're happy, they're rejoicing, they're giving him a missions update, and he's looking at their needs. He's looking at their limitations. I say that to you today directly. He's looking at you today, and he knows your limitations. He knows your needs in this moment and where maybe you need some rest or some recovery or some recreation. Please see that. That's going to come even more alive as we go on in this text. But there's a lot to see here about your God, about our God, about our shepherd, in the way Jesus interacts with the disciples. Remember, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. So what you see in Jesus, you see about the Father. You see the compassion of God in Jesus for his disciples. And you need to apply that directly to your life. And don't think it's just about them. You're in the story, okay? So please see that. He comes, he comes, he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. We need to come away with Jesus at times lest we come apart. <laughs> I think that's true. Verse 32, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And the interesting thing about the Sea of Galilee is it's pretty small. If a boat moves from point A to point B on that lake, it's, since it's not a, really an ocean at all, you can see where it's going. You can look across and say, well, I think it's going to make port over there. I see that, that boat. It's going from here to there. The crowds, which there's been this enormous popularity around Jesus at this point, the crowds who know about Jesus, they are, they're watching the boat that Jesus and the disciples got into, and so they follow it. 
not in boats, but they, they outrun it on the shorelines, and they, and they get ahead of the boat, and they get to where they believe Jesus and the disciples are going to make port. It says that the boat, they, they got away in a boat to go to this desolate place, but look at 33, verse 33, now many saw them going, recognized them, and ran there on foot from all the towns. You've got a bunch of fishing villages on the north shore there of Galilee, and they got there ahead of them. Now the disciples were probably saying, what in the world? He promised us rest. What's this? There's a whole bunch of crowds here. We didn't come here for more ministry. Now, did Jesus mislead them? No. I'm sure there's more to the story. We don't have the end of it, if you will. When did they get their rest? I'm sure they got it. Not immediately they didn't. I have a strange comment on this. It might seem strange to you, but it's personal to me. I get one scheduled day off a week, and that's Mondays. And for reasons I don't even understand, I don't fully fathom, not always, but often on Mondays when I'm, not, I'm trying not to think about being a pastor or doing my job, if you will, I'm just trying to decompress and think about anything but that, sometimes things fall right into my lap or, or, or opportunities come before me that call me into some kind of ministry opportunity that I wasn't expecting and I want to protest almost in my heart and say, Lord, what are you doing? It's my day off. What's this about? What, what, what's happening? And I, but I, I try to accept it and go for it and just jump into whatever that is. And I sense the pleasure of the Lord in that moment that I'm doing the right thing. You know, the Lord is free to interrupt our schedules at any time. And he does give us rest. He knows how to, how to help us with that schedule. But we just need to be humble and approachable and teachable. And, and that's what's happening here. These disciples are like, okay, we're going to go get some rest. He's taking us to a desolate place, and they get to the shoreline, and all of a sudden there's thousands of people. They must have just rolled their eyes like, oh. And, and, and what does Jesus do? Well, you, you find that, we find that out really quickly. Uh, verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Boy, that's a, not a strong enough word, but underneath that means, when it says he had compassion, it means from the depth of his being. He had pity on them. He felt their need. Look what it says. You can get that even from the context without the Greek background. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He knew they were like wanderers. They had nobody really providing them spiritual care. And he began to teach them many things. He just went right back into serving. Now the disciples had a lot to learn. They were observing that. They were watching him. He began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, probably about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, because it's still daylight, his disciples came to him. I think they're getting tired by now. And they said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. It's going to be dark within two hours by 6. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. In other words, we're done. We're done. Get them out of here. And then he shocked them again. Verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. Now that had to set them back on their sandals. Huh. They looked at him. They, they protested. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? And they didn't have that kind of money. That's over half a year's wages for a working man. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. They found a young boy that basically had a young boy's sack lunch. Literally, that's what they had. They had a sack lunch. Two little sardine-like fish and some loaf cakes. They said, here's what we have, one boy's lunch. And so that cinched it. 
Jesus set up an impossible situation in front of them, and he says, feed him. Why in the world would he do that? Well, let's just take a step back here. By now, as we read on in the story, I'd like to say, I'd like to think, rather, that, man, if they had just come in from an effective mission that they were excited about, that they were telling Jesus about, remember where we started here in the story? And Jesus had used them to do healings, to do exorcisms, to do effective preaching. Maybe by now they'd have some faith that God was going to do something here in their midst, that Jesus had this situation figured out, but they don't. They have no confidence. They have no faith. Now, there's something good about that. In their weakness, I find some solace because that's how I am. God has done so much in and through my life and yours, many of yours, and yet we still sell him short. We still don't remember what he's done in answers to prayer or in, in, in helping us in, in situations and in taking care of us. And we worry and we fret. And we, oh, what are we going to do? And, and I, call, I find myself, instead of praying, I complain. And I need to w- turn that around. And here's the disciples. I'm like them. God has done great things. A new situation comes up, an impossible situation. And I go, oh, no. Oh, no. How about you? You ever find yourself in that situation? Now, Jesus was testing them, wasn't he? He knew what he was going to do. He wanted to see what they were going to do. Would they trust him? Would they believe in him? Would they look to him? They were looking at things from simply a human point of view, which we do as well. And then we see what he did. He commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He did what any Jewish man would do in his household. He'd look up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all. A miracle is performed and Mark doesn't explain how the molecular Uh, composition of these goods was all of a sudden reproduced miraculously, but it was. The point is, is Jesus is God. He's creating food. He can do it. And he divided it all. He divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, I said the The number isn't the main thing, but I don't want to say that's not important because there were more than 5,000 there. It says 5,000 men. So you can assume three to 5,000 women. So we're up to eight to 10,000. And then you can assume probably 2,500 children. Conservatively speaking, you got 15,000 people here. Scholars will contend in some of them, well, 20, even more. I've even seen estimates higher. But let's say 15,000 people. Man, that's an army, huh? That's a third of the city, uh, the population of this city. Not a small thing. And Jesus leaves them with more food at the end than they had at the beginning. And it says that they were all satisfied. They didn't all just get a little breadcrumb. There's food left over. There's baskets of food. So what a mighty miracle. Now assume you were there and I was there. What would be the lessons learned there? Well, we don't have to look too hard to see them. Compassion would be the first one that our God is one of of grace and compassion. Uh, Compassion should be the one on the screen there. There you go, thank you. And I've already mentioned at verse 31, we see the Lord looking after the needs of his his own disciples. He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. That rest was on the way. There was just a little more ministry to do. And he did most of that, didn't he? Uh, Mark tells us, excuse me, Luke, 
in Luke's gospel, commenting on the same big event that Jesus didn't just feed them, he healed. He taught them, he healed, and then the miracle of the feeding came. And so Jesus is, is showing compassion. And of course, it says that he had great compassion on the people. Uh, as we look on in verse 34, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were sh like sheep without a shepherd. You know, that's a, it, it calls to mind Psalm 23, 1, doesn't it? David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. I shall not be in want. Jesus is the good shepherd. Do you see your shepherd here today? Not just in this text, but applied to your life. He looks after you, friend. He cares about you. He has compassion on you. And everything you truly need, he will take care of. He cares about your needs. He doesn't concern himself with your or my greeds, but he, he concerns himself with our needs. He has compassion on us. He created us. He cares for us. Jesus looks at the crowds. He says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he ministers to them. He's going to take care. He's going to teach them things of the kingdom. He's going to bring healing to them. He's even going to bring nourishment. He's going to bring food to them. And in Israel's past, they had had a lot of, they had had a lot of bad shepherds. They had had shepherds that that were worthless. Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Zechariah 11, human shepherds that were in it for the gain. They didn't take care of the sheep. They were worthless. Psalm 95, Isaiah 40, Jeremiah speak of God's work as a shepherd of his people. And I'm going to put one of those on the screen for you. Isaiah 40, 10 through 11. Look at the Lord here as, as a shepherd. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. That's God's heart for his people. And he wants to be a shepherd to all people, if we'll just let him be that. And so the disciples that were present that day had quite an object lesson, didn't they? Our Lord is the good shepherd, and when needs, when human needs arise, we need to be like him. We need to show compassion on those needs and not turn away from people. We need to serve them. And you know, if you're a Christian today, Christ's compassion is already at work within you because you have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead alive within you. And so the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, next slide, he said Christ's love compels us it compels us by the spirit of God within us because we are convinced that one died for all. Jesus died for all of us, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ calls us to show compassion, to not only receive it, to believe in it, that he's so very compassionate towards us and he will satisfy us and take care of us and meet our needs, but that we are also to minister to, again and again to others. And let me tell you, friend, you are never more like Jesus than when you are driven by his compassion to do what he would do in a given situation. You're never more like Jesus than when you are driven by his compassion to do what he would do in a given situation. And his love compels you, the Bible says, if you will allow it to. His spirit will compel you. That's why Paul said, Christ's love compels me to do what I do for him. That's, that's to be true of, of all of us. 
So the disciples learned a lot about the king's compassion that day. And they, they saw that God is interested in human need. And we are to be as well, even if that interrupts our rest schedule at times. And they also heard Jesus give instruction on matters of salvation. They heard some life lessons, friends. That's our next slide. Life lessons. Jesus gave, gave truth for the wandering. In Luke's account of the same biblical event, it says Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus was teaching the, the crowds that day that were gathered there about salvation, about the kingdom. And he healed those who needed healing. All of that before the feeding of the thousands. So there's another object lesson there here. What you and I have to give in the name of Jesus, we should give. Now, I'm going to fast forward to another biblical illustration. Acts chapter 3. So some years fast forward from this event. Peter and John are going into the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is back on the throne in heaven. And they are spreading the good news. And in Acts chapter 3, they are heading into the temple for the time of prayer. And John and Peter see a man who's been lame from birth, who is a beggar who's holding out his hand looking for people to give him money as they go into the temple and come out of the temple. And Peter and John look at him. Peter locks eyes with him, and the man thinks he's about to get a handout. And Peter looks at him, and he says, I have no coinage for you, buddy. He says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And he holds out his hand, and he picks him up. Peter had the gift of healing, and the man was healed. And he goes leaping into the temple. And people said, what? What is going on? Now, I don't claim the gift of healing, but I've got other gifts. So do you. What do you do with those gifts? Do you give them out to people in the name of Jesus? Maybe, maybe like Peter, you can say to others, silver and gold, I do not have. But what I have, I, I give you. I give it to you with his compassion. And, and it's this gift, or it's this gift. It's this comfort. It's this grace. You've got gifts to give to the king with the compassion. You do. Every one of us does. We can give truth for the wandering. We can teach things of the scriptures that the Lord has taught to us. We can impart those. There's so much he's given us. And, and it's not just for us. It's to be given through us. Well, the disciples are getting restless here in this text, and they really do want that rest that Jesus had promised them. So verse 35 here, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away. There, I can sense a bit of restlessness in them. And then Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And what's the point here? Opportunities here to see what God can do with impossible situations. That's what's happening here. Next slide. God gives us opportunities in life at times to see what we will do with impossible situations. This was a test. And did they pass? No, <laughs> they failed. But Jesus passed. <laughs> he helped them succeed. He took care of it. Maybe you're facing a situation today that humanly is impossible. Maybe a situation has come about that you're saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how to solve this. I have no wisdom for this. I have no resources for this. We get into those kinds of situations, and I want to tell you, it didn't catch God by surprise. It might have caught you by surprise, but he is your resource to help you with it. I don't want to give you a pat answer, but I want to tell you, look to him. Pray to him. Say, Lord, help me with this impossible situation, and he will give you what you need to help you with it, to navigate through it. 
Every situation is different, is unique, but he's the same. He's not limited in his ability to help you. His arm isn't shortened that it cannot save, the scripture says. In this case, the need is physical. There's an impossible situation. Jesus makes sure they see how impossible it is. He asks them the question, how many loaves do you have? He already knew what they could produce, and they go and find out, and they say, we've, got, we've basically got, we've got a little boy's sack lunch. We got five loaves and two fish. So that cinches the deal. There's nothing here that'll feed all thousands of 10 to 15,000 people. So why did you tell us to feed, give them something to eat? Jesus puts them in an impossible situation to see what he will do. And look what he does. He blesses the food and he reproduces it. There's another point here you and I need to see and not miss this because I think the disciples must have caught this. What little we have when we surrender it to God like this little boy's sack lunch given to God for the purposes that God would use it for is reproduced immensely to benefit so many people. God will take what little bit you might give him of your prayers, of your gifts, of your service, whatever you give him, if you give it to him from your heart to serve him, he will take it and multiply it in ways you can't imagine. Kind of makes you want to get in the game, doesn't it? Kind of, want to, kind of makes you want to invest your life for the kingdom. Because he'll take, and so if you want to give a lot, well, guess what he'll do with that? A lot. He'll take what little you give. He took a sack lunch, a little boy's sack lunch, and he fed 15,000 people because he's God. So what will he do with the little things that you and I might offer of our time, of our treasure, of our talent, of our testimony? Amazing things, friends. He multiplies them. I think the disciples learned that that day. And if you look again at, at, the, at the text, verse 42, it says that all of these people ate and were satisfied. God's abundance came through the gift of a little boy's sack lunch. Faith and the, and the wonder-working power of Jesus. God fed. God multiplied a small thing into a big thing. Think about that. So what, here's my question to, to start to close the sermon with. What can you give to Jesus today? What can you give him? Have you ever given him your heart? Have you given him your trust? Trust in his forgiveness of sin? That's the first thing that you, you want to do is give him your heart. He wants your heart. He doesn't want good deeds from you. He doesn't want to moral living. and He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants, he wants to be your savior and your leader. If you've given him that, then are you living to be faithful to him? Are you living to be faithful to him, friend? He gives abundance to those who come to him. Jesus is the bread of life. He fed these people materially with food. Elsewhere in scripture, Jesus himself is called the bread of life. Here he produces bread, but he is the bread of life. And if you come to him, your soul will be satisfied forever. Have you come to know him? 